0: I don't feel like Bailey's is a massively underrated Christmas drink.
1: Not really been a fan of Bailey's, but I will need to maybe give it a second chance.
0: Anyway, 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 anyway. Welcome to the Action Podcast Christmas Special. I am Nick APD, and to the side of me is Kim Gonick. How are you, Kim?
1: Well, I'm just gonna put that out there for everybody. I am ill, so I might <clears throat> sound like A frog, and be clearing my throat, and I will try and mute myself if I cough. So just putting that out there, I might not be on full form today.
0: Well, you've done well because I didn't think we were gonna actually get today's podcast recorded because you are a machine and you are never ill. What have you been up to in this festive month of joy? Have you anything? Are you all ready for the big day?
1: My Christmas tree is not even up yet at the moment. It got delivered. So I have it, it's just just not (laughs) up. It's not decorated.
0: We have been invaded by little elves. The elf on a shelf is in full swing in our house. My boy started out with one elf a few years ago and I bought him a companion elf. So we had Eli and Elfie. made the ideas easier. And then somebody brought him Eric. And then somebody bought him Elton. And Carla went out and bought another one, which Jackson has a- named Bob. So we got Eli, Eric, Elfie and Elton, and Bob. Trying but- to think up ideas for five elves.
1: Yeah, five elves, man. How come the last one got called five Bob? Them. Like, you had all elves with an E name, and then Jackson Bob. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I no,
0: know. I know, man. But then, you know, Jackson named Action Pop Dad, so...
1: Wow, well, that's how we've ended up with APC. <laughs> anyway, anyway, that's not anyway, why we're anyway. here.
0: Tonight's subject is Kim's subject, or a subject I love. So Kim, what is tonight's special Christmas subject?
1: So tonight we are going to talk about the nightmare before Christmas. So Jack Skellington and Halloween Town and all his fun friends. And if you've not seen the film, then... I have no respect for you whatsoever because you should have and tut tut you need to go see the film if you want my respect anyway just, so <laughs> not fair. so just for those who might not have seen the film not like embarrassing anybody if you haven't but um the film basically follows Jack Skellington who is the main character so he is the beloved pumpkin king of Halloween town but he's become bored um, of the annual routine of just frightening people in the real world on Halloween. And he wants something to sort of lift his spirits again and give him a new lease on life. And he accidentally stumbles upon Christmas Town. And with all the bright colours and the warm spirits, he's like, oh yeah, this is something I definitely want to sort of try out. So he plots to bring Christmas under his control and he kidnaps Santa Claus. But He soon discovers that his best-laid plan didn't quite pan out the way he wanted to and they kind of went seriously awry.
0: Kind of makes it sound like two people had an idea for a podcast. They tried it and things went seriously (laughs) awry. Anyway, (laughs) to go off subject.
1: (laughs) But that's sort of the film synopsis. But obviously, there is a little bit more of a backstory for here. So originally... The Nightmare Before Christmas was in fact a sort of like a short story poem that originated by Tim Burton in 1982 um, while he was working as an animator at Walt Disney Productions. So, with, so Tim Burton had critical success with a short film called Vincent which was based upon Vincent Price which was one of his idols at the time. So... Once, because there was a bit of um, success with Vincent, he began to consider developing the film, or either a short film, like half an hour television special, of The Nightmare Before Christmas. Because his, um, basically he kept returning to The Nightmare Before Christmas. He put it on the back burner, right? So I kept returning. And <clears throat> he did actually make a development deal with Walt Disney Studios at the time. And it kind of got grounded to a halt a little while because there were some more creative differences and bits and pieces and sort of Burton then got fired from Disney and he sort of moved on to do other things like Beetlejuice Batman Batman Returns etc the Nightmare Before Christmas was always sort of in the back of his mind so he found out that Disney still had the rights to it so he went back and they sort of made a deal that they would start filming this and obviously the production then started in July 1991 in San Francisco And it was eventually made, but Disney didn't want to put it under the Disney umbrella. They wanted to put it through Touchstone Pictures just because they felt the movie was still a little bit too dark and scary for kids and they didn't necessarily want to say it was all Disney. But even though the story itself was sort of based on TV specials like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the Grinch That Stole Christmas, you know, the sort of like small animated sort of cartoons and stuff you used to see on Christmas. That's sort of um, where he was. The other part of it was Burton also thought he did consider that The Nightmare Before Christmas could be a children's book and they could then be narrated in an audio book and that type of thing by Vincent Price, who again was his idol at the time. But luckily for us, it did get turned into a feature film and that's why we're here today to talk about it just before I sort of dive into the movie production and things like that I think it's important for us um to talk about the fact yes the story originated by Tim Burton but it wasn't Burton's film he didn't bring it to life and we have to recognize that Henry Salick himself as the director he brought it to life and Nick I believe you did a little bit of research on that if you want to sort of delve into that before we hit the backstory of the movie
0: I did, yeah. Um, Something I just want to say as well, something you touched on, something I find interesting with this, and it's a very typical Disney thing to do. When The Nightmare Before Christmas was initially done as a trailer, teased in the cinemas, it was under the Disney banner. And as Kim's already touched on they then moved it to Touchstone because I think they were a bit afraid of it tainting the House of Mouse brand. However, now the film has been taken back to the Disney brand. I just, I just wanted to point out here because Disney tend to do what Disney want to do without really caring what the potential fallout is or, or what it, what upset it could cause for people involved with projects. Traditionally speaking, I know the subject is about the nightmare before Christmas, and I'm not going to dive deep into this, but Disney upset Robin Williams over Aladdin. This leads to something here. Disney decided, it was probably two or three weeks before the release of The Nightmare Before Christmas, despite the fact that Henry Selleck was the director of the film. And it's worth saying, Selleck has noted, Tim Burton was probably only on the set for the production of this film, maybe eight to ten days out of the full three-year production. They decided that they would put Tim Burton... Solely above it, Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. Now, a lot of people don't actually realise that Tim Burton didn't direct this film. They've they've done this. I can sort of see why they would have done it. However, in an interview Selleck did with the AV Club, would you mind, Kim, if I just read you a couple of, a couple of bits from an interview that Henry Selleck did, just to give you an idea of what the issue was and where the upset comes? Yeah, go for it. So, as I said, AB Club interview, Henry Selleck said, but Tim was in LA making two features. I directed that film, and I mean, Tim is a genius, or he certainly was in his most creative years. I always thought his story was perfect, and he designed the main characters, but it was really me and my team of people who brought that to life. So it's a little bit of a kick in the balls for Selleck here, because he's expecting... He's not trying to claim ownership of the characters or the... He's not trying to say he came up with the idea, but I can see where he's coming from. You've got a guy who had an idea, and as with many things, in Selleck and his team, puppeteers, the direction, everything he did, they brought this film to life. And to come in at the last minute and say, boom, it's all about Tim Burton. I can sort of see why Disney did it, because Burton was starting to get very successful in Hollywood. He was very sought after. He had the, the Batman films, I believe, as you already said one of the reasons he couldn't be on set for this movie is he was filming batman returns he'd had edward scissor hands and other films such as that so sellick was obviously feeling a little bit disgruntled by this but he also went on to send this interview and this is interesting now of course if you ask danny elfman well that's his movie when we finished the film it was funny because he came up to me shook my hand and said henry you've done a wonderful job illustrating my songs And he was serious and I loved it. Fine. But my thing was, I'm going to hang in there for long enough to where people actually say, Oh, that Henry guy, he does stuff. All Selleck was really looking for was recognition. This was something that had never really been attempted on this scale before. And he was a guy who was, was, still is, and has made several stop motion movies... But this was the big one. This was where it all really kicked off. The Nightmare Before Christmas is unique in every way. It it was filmed like a real film. The stages, albeit miniature, they were miniature sets. They had proper miniaturized lighting. It was lit like you would light a film. Everything about it was produced like a normal Hollywood film, albeit much slower to film, much smaller scale. So Selleck was obviously somewhat disgruntled by that. But I did find another interview, which he did with Screen Rant. I'm just going to read last paragraph here. I promise it's not going to all be paragraphs. But he has gotten past it because he goes on in the interview. Sorry, I put my teeth back in. He goes on to say in the interview he did with Screen Rant, it's not really a problem. For the most part, at least everyone in the industry, everyone in animation knows it's me who directed it. I think it made sense to put his name on it Burton, to make sure people didn't confuse it. Maybe with nightmare on Elm street or some out and out horror film. So yeah, it bothered me more years ago, but it doesn't bother me now. So they've moved past and they've done other things together, but do you, do you understand what I mean? I, this is a point I raised for the podcast when we were researching this. Um, do you see where Selick's coming from with this? Because I, I feel a bit sorry for the guy. Although he's passed it now, I do feel he got looked over massively. And even to this day, I think if you went out and asked 100 people on the street, for one they knew, were aware of The Nightmare Before Christmas, who who made it, who directed it? I think they would all say Tim Burton.
1: Yeah. Would you, would you agree them, with mo- that yeah. statement? I think most of them would say Tim Burton. I think... The way I think about it now, obviously there would be no story without Tim Burton's story, but there also would be no film without Henry Selleck taking on the film. But I also feel like... I feel like although they've put Tim Burton... Disney decided to put Tim Burton's name on that movie, I don't get the impression that that would have been something that Tim Burton would have asked for himself. I think because he he had a name for himself already, they just utilised that. So I think, to be honest... In both Burton and Salek's defence, I think it was probably Disney made that decision whether Salak and Burton agreed with it or not. This
0: is this is why I brought up the Robin Williams incident with Aladdin. Because it's very similar. Disney don't care who they step on and what they do. They never have historically. There are so many stories in Hollywood of things Disney have done which are just a bit shitty ultimately they're not breaking any laws or doing anything illegal They do, they have the right to do what they've done but on a on a moral level they've not always been the best people for decisions they've made now i get it disney as much as they say it's about the magic and the cartoons and that like any business they want to make money and they saw an opportunity to, look, like, Tim Burton's doing really well. He did come up with the story. Boom, it's Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. Even Selleck said it in that last bit I read from that interview from AV Club. He gets it. He understands it. But then with that last bit I read, all along, and, and everything he's basically alluding to is he just wanted to be recognised as the director. Mm. He didn't want... Yeah. He doesn't want to take ownership of the characters. He just wants his fair... Well done, mate. You did good. Because that film was, that film was massive. The pu- the puppets. I mean, there was something like two hundred puppets for it, all with custom built skeletons inside of them. They were all made for with something like sixty points of articulation. Jack Skellington has, but you can see there on the slide. If you're listening to this on one of the podcasting formats, please do check this out on YouTube to see the slides. But you can see that Jack Skellington had something like 400 heads. Sally had something like 40 masks because they couldn't remove her head because of the hair. Everything about it was planned meticulously. There were mo- there was something like four of every puppet. They would be filming potentially two Jack Skellington, three or four Jack Skellington scenes a day to get it moving. Because each, each shot was 24, for each second of the film is 24 stills they took so and each minute of the film took approximately seven days to make so they had to be quite creative and it was a team of approximately 100 people and when you hear that tim burton was only really on the set for eight to ten days and i appreciate he had other commitments i just think that that shows i can certainly see why henry Selick was a bit pissed at the time but i'm glad that they got past it now but in my research it's amazing how many people don't mention Selleck
1: no it's so it um, still
0: goes on today same with
1: um it's the same with Coraline Coraline Tim Burton had nothing to do with Coraline that was all Henry Selleck but because it's stop motion they just automatically went down the Burton route but it's not it's 100% Selleck it um created Coraline
0: I'm sorry, was it not the same for James and the Giant Peach, though? Burton was attached to it, but it was essentially Selleck.
1: But I think the reason they thought it was Burton was because they've used Jack Skellington in James and the Giant Peach. They've made a reference to him. So to be honest, as soon as they did that, they kind of yeah. brought Burton's name into it themselves, really. But this was more Selleck.
0: Yeah, and I think I mean, they would have mm. done that. They would have done that for several reasons. It's quite a cool cameo from... Well, we assume it's Jack Skellington. He's not listed as it's a Skellington. It's a skeleton. Sorry, I'm saying, saying Skellington because of his surname. It's a skeleton <laughs> in the style of Jack Skellington. Um, yeah. Um, but let's face it, that's that. That's what it was put in there for. Um, I mean, it was probably to drum up theories among the fans, which is, I'm sure, something you're going to be touching on a bit later in this podcast.
1: Yeah, and so, just to go off topic, I kinda yeah. feel sorry for Jack Skellington because if you look in this slide, he's naked. He has no clothes. Poor Jack. <laughs> oh Jack. He's no clothes as the pirate. I mean he's just he hasn't, he's just both. I don't
0: think I, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's anything he has to cover though. should job, <laughs> no, but it still seems and. He's just got a beard. (laughs) I'm going to take this opportunity right now as well. While we're off subject, while we're off topic, while we've gone on a bit of one. (laughs) Excuse me. Are you wearing the same jumper as me? Have we?
1: Yes. Have we both got the same jumper We're matching. We're matching today. We're matching today.
0: Amazing. I know. This isn't planned. I'm just sat here looking, going, I can see my jumper and I'm like, she has. She's got the same jumper as me. Well, we, I guess we just both have fantastic taste.
1: We do. And so oh, sorry, just will a, a little more that. Yeah, but it's a nightmare before um, Christmas podcast. It's allowed. It's fine. While we're all still on the topic of the making of, we sort of touched on how many puppets there were and how many versions of each puppet, and 400s. hundreds. Um, versions of Jack Skellington's head and stuff but just to put it sort of into context there were 13 animators altogether there was over 100 special trained camera operators puppet makers set builders prop makers they filled 19 sound stages there was 230 sets in total and hundreds of individual puppet characters and I think it's important for people to realize that everything was done on storyboards in sequence of how they were going to do the film and even if they changed a minute detail they didn't change that while filming they changed it on the storyboards so any detail changes any enhancements anything like that any refinements it was all done on the storyboards before they even So even if they got halfway through a scene and decided they were going to refine something they refined it on the storyboard before they decided to film the next part of that scene very much which is very much the same style as like German Expressionist mixed with a little bit of Dr. Zeus sort of that sort of style for them being able to film in sequence and the way that they filmed like if you really look at the movie and look at the surroundings um I actually found out in the making of that they put a lot of clay into the sets so that then they could texturize it sort of to play to sort of pay homage to artists uh, like pen ink illustrations um like Ronald Cyril or Edward Gorey sort of elaborate textures like by covering the sets in clay um, just to, in order to create sort of that depth that you see within the movie. But they were basically given, they were hindered a little bit because Burton said that the only colours they could really use for Halloween Town were black, white, and orange um, to create sort of textures and lines. Um, but also. Such
0: a limited this... colour palette, don't they? Yeah. Do well.
1: Like you it's can excellent. see from the slide, like the one where Jack Skellington's on the hill. That literally is your black, white, gray, and the, like your orange and stuff in there to create that sort of gloomy, scary sort of effect. But all that you see, like a lot of that is clay, especially where they've put the lines in to sort of use that texture. But we also have to remember these sets were about twenty four feet long. They were a bit, they were quite big sets, and they used sort of twenty three to thirty different lights. like they were lighting. These sets, like, you would light a normal movie set with normal real-life actors. They didn't use sort of smaller lights or anything. They made it as if it was a big feature-length film so that the lighting and the filming was accurate and just as good as any, like, like say, your Mission Impossible-type films with all that lighting. They made sure to use the exact same thing.
0: There was a scene in it which... Um, I'm researching it. It's something I'd never thought about before, but this this is the level of detail they went to. When Jack is in the forest with all the different trees and he finds Christmas Town, the scene where he goes up to the door and the doorknob is brass and shiny and you see his reflection in it and you see his hand go for it, that was all done completely practically. That was apparently one of the hardest shots, other than oogie Boogie" at the end with all the fluorescent neon stuff. Apparently, that shot took so much time for its seconds. It's it's this is hand reaching for the door, and they had to set up all the lights and cameras and everything so as not to catch themselves in the reflection. And it took an incredible amount of time, but that's probably why the detail that that sort of level of detail is why this film is pretty much ageless. You told me a fact, and I don't want to steal your thunder here, but what was the fact you told me about Jack's eyes, something about the inserts?
1: So, although they had 400 Jack heads, they also had multiple eyelids. So, although he doesn't have eyes, they had multiple versions of his eyelids. And I think it took, I think it was like 10 different eyelids just to have a scene where he blinks. It was an extremely long process just to have him blink in the movie because of the amount of inserts of his eyelids they had to change.
0: Which is incredible, especially given, and I'm glad the production team straight up ignored Disney on this, Disney were concerned because Jack doesn't have eyes and they thought people wouldn't be able to relate to a character without eyes. But they were like, no, he's a skeleton. He hasn't got eyes. And they they ignored them and they did their own thing and thankfully they did. but it's little details like this. You talk about the color palette of black, white, and orange. I know that when they went to Christmas town they made a decision to make it so colorful, so vibrant. all the reds, the greens, the whites it the, the palette was was not the biggest in the world, but they did you they used the obvious Christmas colors is what I'm trying to say. There were more colours than this, and that was done to show the stark contrast between the two lands. Just as like when they go when Jack flies to the real world to deliver out his version of Christmas, they decided to keep it very boxy, very grey, very subdued to show the difference between the real world, Christmas Town, and Halloween Town. Now, given that Christmas Town has got a lot more in the colour palette than Halloween Town, as rich as Christmas. Christmas Town looks with the colors. I still think the best looking part of the film are those blacks, greys, and oranges in Halloween Town. I watched the movie, this is how well the movie's aged. I watched it on Disney Plus the other night. I actually watched the sing along version with the lyrics. Highly annoyed my wife when I decided to sit there and sing to every song while we were watching it. <laughs> Let's face it, it's, it's a great film. And For years, I've watched it on a DVD I brought. Uh, I originally got it in the year it came out on VHS for Christmas. I bought it on uh, DVD probably, wow, we were in our first house, so we're going back 10, 12, 13 years ago. And to see it in HD, and we don't have the 4K package for Disney+, Plus, just HD, but we've just got a new TV because ours went kaput. And to see it in HD on that beautiful screen, it's the film has not aged. It's impeccable. I was genuinely, I messaged you while I was watching it, like, saying, oh my god, this film looks absolutely amazing. I haven't even seen the 4K version of it yet, which I'm dying to see now. But it's rich, it's colourful, the textures, everything about it. This film, in a hundred years' time, will still look fresh as the day it was made. And this is why I'm glad they picked this style and not Traditional animation, not CGI. It just blew me away. I'll, I'll stop waffling now, but yeah, really, please do check this film out on as high a definition as you can watch it, because I think you will be amazed how, with modern TVs and whatnot, all the beautiful stuff you will get to see that you wouldn't have seen years ago.
1: Especially considering, if we put it into perspective, all the characters that you see in the movie there were only 3 to 4 prop makers so the only 3 to 4 people that actually made the puppets and actually put them together and sculpted it's them and which is a very small amount considering how many there were and then they had to use latex foam in order to make them more flexible because of course they were, weren't close enough to slight to an animatronic but they were still they still had mechanical armature for inside them to help with the maneuvering But what's really good about it is they actually hand machined all that armature so it was fluid and accurate so that when they were changing positions, it was very easy to manoeuvre them and it was in a very smooth fashion so that when they did then animate it together, it wasn't this sort of robot, jerky, poppy movement. It was a very flowy movement, which I think aids the fact that it's aged so well as well because it's not like you can see... It's not like CGI where you can watch older films and see how CGI has progressed and how it's smoothed out and become a lot more advanced. I feel like with stop motion, it sort of is what it is. And like you can't see, there is, you can't see the sort of the improvement and the way it moves and the change and how technology and stuff's improved. It definitely has improved. But because it's not pixelated and digitalized like that and they made it so smooth. I think that aids in it, that the it ages so well, because you can't tell. Like, if you watch the movie, you can't tell that somebody literally spent every second moving moving those puppets about, in order to make it do what That's it needed like to do for the film.
0: Twenty four still shots, mm-hmm. twenty four still shots per one second of film, and if they yeah. so much as made one slight error, I, they actually created a system for the film. told them if any of the lights went down because one small change in the lighting, one small error with the placement of the camera which they could program to position. So when you think 109,000 something frames for the film and each minute taking a week and each second taking 24 still shots you can see why three years is just it sounds like an incredibly crazy amount of time it would take to make a film, but it make it makes total sense because if we look at so a popular thing we we used to get around Christmas time in the UK. You're obviously aware of Wallace and Gromit, aren't you, Kim? Yes, definitely. Now that is stop motion, Ardman Animations. Incredible. It's got its own sort of beautiful, naive charm to it. The puppets are a lot; they're nowhere near as detailed. There, you can even see the fingerprints on, like the the clay of the puppets, and the movements are a bit more herky jerky than the Nightmare Before Christmas. And I'm not knocking it because it's his own beautiful charm to it, and I love the Wallace and Gromit stuff. But when you when you look at that, and then you look at something like the Nightmare Before Christmas, which I appreciate was made to be that much more elaborate, but when you see the comparison between sort of a lot of effort went into the artman stuff, but it it just shows the step up from that level to the level of the Nightmare Before Christmas is massive, massive. I mean, the number of people when you think what was it you said about a hundred people working on that film?
1: Yeah, so there was about one hundred twenty workers altogether, and any so, um that was a mix of camera operators, puppet makers, set builders, prop makers. So that's not really even including Selick and that themselves. Like This was just people who were, were there to support and they were filming multiple scenes at multiple times.
0: Um, Incredible. Just one little thing I want to chuck out there, and it's definitely worth watching the making of The Nightmare Before Christmas, and it is on YouTube, and show notes and links will be included in the description of this video if you want to check out any of the interviews bits we've read stuff we've watched but even down to the detail of the sets having breakaway sections because i believe it was around 18 the artist never wanted to be more than 18 or 24 inches away from the puppets so they could get in there and, and do the fine adjustment. They even built trap doors into the set, which are seamless. You can't see them, but they could pop up, move the characters, and it's just incredible what they did. And one thing that stood out to me when I watched the making of, now it stands to reason the puppets are not going to be huge, but in my head, I always thought they were about six to eight inches, but they're actually quite big. The puppets are sizable puppets. They're and which I believe probably added to the incredible detail on them and whatnot. But I was taken back when I watched the making of, just to see how how big the puppets are. I mean, I don't know. I don't know a lot about stop motion. Well, I've learned a bit doing this podcast and doing the research for it. But I just always assumed everything was quite small. But it does make sense for them to be bigger because obviously they need to be able to. Pose them and see what they're doing. Um, now that we've sort of covered the making of the film and the the Select Burton thing, Kim, I do believe that you were very lucky to attend the live nightmare before Christmas concert. Did you want to go into that a little bit and speak about the soundtrack of the film? Uh and yeah, the experiences so... when you went to see that?
1: <laughs> so obviously, Most people here will know about Danny Elfman. Um, He's quite a famous composer, musician. Just putting it out there, he has worked with other people other than Burton. It is not just him, Burton, that he works with, although he has worked with him quite a lot. Um, But Danny Elfman, so just to put it into context, he said that The Nightmare Before Christmas was actually one of the easiest films that he's ever composed for, mainly because he resonated with Jack Skellington so much. And he wasn't even really given a script or a storyline um, from Tim Burton. So sort of really what happened was Alfman and Burton would just sit and listen to the, sort of the tracks that Elfman made. And then Burton would sort of talk about the next steps. And then once Burton had left, Alfman would just go and start writing them. So all they did was just sit and have a cup of tea and have a conversation about this is what Jack does next in the story. And this is what Sally does next in the story. And then they'd leave and then Danny Elfman would go and write the music. And just to put it into context, right, so Danny Elfman has been working in the film industry for a long time, but he also partook in the band Oingo Boingo, which is why his music sort of sounds sort of quirky and comical and it's dark but lighthearted at the same time. And that's, like, it's definitely a band people should check out because it it resonates so much as to why he gets, why he sort of is the way he is in terms of how he composes. But if for any reason, oh, this is going to sound really cheesy, but um, if the Danny Elfman sort of uh, Nightmare Before Christmas with orchestra comes to a location near you, I would definitely make sure that you put the money aside to go and see it it's just so different so it basically they show the whole entire film so from start to finish but then they'll pause it and they'll have the people that sing the songs that are in the movie come out and start singing so there was Danny Athman and we had Ken Page who did the Oogie Boogie song we did have Catherine O'Hara that did Sally's Song and Pee Wee Herman but it's I can't remember his name I, I, I can never remember I mean his Paul name. Rubens. paul rubens yeah um paul rubens. he was there as well to do all the voices and some other people who were there from the background of the movie coming out to do those songs and just sort of listening to it with the orchestra and stuff behind it it is just a completely different experience while you're watching the movie it's um similar they do similar things with bbc's planet earth and all this type of thing and it really does just give you a different it's just a different experience so it's definitely one of those things that I'll say if you get the chance to go to it I would go to it because it really is just a different the music just being live and being done with an orchestra so you can hear all the little bits and pieces that you maybe miss when it's coming through a tv because you're watching the imagery whereas you're more focused on the music you definitely hear extra bits and you're like oh I didn't know they put in Sort of that instrument or I didn't know that it had all these other quirky bits and pieces in it and definitely if I had the chance to see it again I would probably see it again
0: yeah I something when you sent video clips of when you attended to me and Carla we watched them and we both said we would really really like to go and see this I think it's amazing that you've seen Catherine O'Hara live um anyone who doesn't know the role you'll probably know her foremost is Kevin McAllister's mum in the Home Alone films. And Paul Rubens, sadly, who passed away this year, was most famous for playing Pee Wee Herman. Which, the connection to Tim Burton is, Tim Burton directed Pee Wee's Big Adventure, so that's probably, because Burton is known for working with the same people over and over and using them. But the, the music is unreal, and Something I learned through this, a couple of things. One, Danny Elfman also did the tune, the theme tune for The Simpsons. So there's something of his that I'm sure everyone will know. And another thing was Chris Sarandon, who played Jack Skellington. I never realized until I researched this, Kim would have already known this, but Danny Elfman actually did the singing voice for Jack. I just assumed it was the same person doing the, the talking voice of Jack and singing voice, but it's not. So Danny Elfman most definitely had a massive part in bringing this to life and another really interesting thing about this there were some issues with writing the script for the nightmare before christmas they found it hard they had a couple of different script writers in but what they basically ended up doing was elfman would write the songs and then they would write the script around the songs whereas it's normally the other way around they'll have a script and they'll write the songs to the script. But it definitely paid off because The Nightmare Before Christmas is a fantastic story. Um, would you mind if I indulge the people a little bit in something that happened um, for the 15-year anniversary of The Nightmare Before Christmas whilst we're talking the music of The Nightmare Before Christmas, yeah, Kim? go for
1: it. Go for it.
0: In 2008, <clears throat> Disney decided for the 15th anniversary of The Nightmare Before Christmas that what they would do... Is that we get together a bunch of current modern-day sort of rock artists to re-record the songs of the nightmare before Christmas. And this was called The Nightmare Revisited. Tim's bring the slide up here. If you've never heard this, if you've got something like Spotify or Amazon Music or whatever, it would definitely be on there. But all the songs are available on YouTube. This is absolutely incredible some of the artists they got on this Danny Alfman was involved he did record um what did he do he still did the opening and he still did the closing but what's incredible now given that this is a Disney records um idea Disney brung this up the choice of some of the artists brilliant as they were on this is surprising to me so for This Is Halloween, you had Marilyn Manson. Let's face it, Marilyn Manson's about as weird as... It, I, I love Marilyn Manson's music. I've seen him a couple of times, um, certainly on the festival circuit years ago. He did This Is Halloween. You had Corn for Kidnap the Sandy Claws. And another good example in there is Plain White Tees for Poor Jack. And Sally's song was actually performed by an artist called Amy Lee. Amy Lee from Evanescence. There's quite a few other artists on there, not to bore you with just reading a list, but when you consider they had the All-American Rejects for Jack's Lament, my personal favourite of all the songs on this film. But not my favourite version that was covered. No offence, All-American Rejects. Um, some of the people they had, they had Rise Against for Making Christmas. Um, as a uh, Data Lock for... To- the to the rescue sort of musical part they they had these incredible artists and i would i would encourage you to most definitely go on wikipedia and look at the full listing or to look at it on um, whatever streaming platform you may use for your music but it's so interesting because marilyn manson actually recorded his song this is halloween or rather a version of it a couple of years before and this is heavily tipped as one of the things that inspired disney to go for this whole idea but uh, an amazing performance that's well worth watching and it's on youtube um amy lee from evanescence uh covering sally's song and she did that for the tonight show with jay leno in 2008 incredible i mean i rate amy lee as incredible anyway but it's just so interesting to hear bands from 2008 and and when you list bands like Korn and Marilyn Manson and Evanescence I appreciate it was Amy Lee on her own but that was very much that era's rock bands wasn't it that sort of there's a very there's a very distinctive feel to that era of music and certainly the rock scene but as I already said it's interesting to me, given how Disney are so strict on protecting their brand. I appreciate Marilyn Manson's had difficulties or whatnot in the last couple of years. I'm not going into that, but he's always been a controversial character. So it is in uh, it just it just boggles my brain how, on one hand, they're like, "Oh, originally we're going to chuck the film on Touchstone Pictures and bring it back to Disney," but then they would bring in all. All these, uh, I mean, Corn. Would you ever, Kim? Would you ever associate a band like Corn doing something Disney-related?
1: No, definitely not. It's devil's music. That you you can get metal music. It's devil's
0: music. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me. Now my cough's kicking in. Um, Oh dear. Yeah, I just wanted to touch. I'm I mean, given you live in Scotland and I live in Dorset. We can be further apart, really. How we've both ended up ill at the same time. Hey, ho. <laughs> um, I just wanted to touch on the nightmare revisited anyway, because I think it's, a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting moment in the history of the nightmare before Christmas. And as, as much as I enjoy the original soundtrack and I do, it is beautifully done. Kim's right Danny Elfman is a genius it is just so cool to hear these guys take on these songs so once this podcast is finished please do go and check it out because if you haven't heard those who have heard it I have no doubt will be potentially in a comment section of, of the video going oh yeah it's amazing if they've seen it but if you haven't please do go and check it out because well it's fantastic so yeah, that's 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 my that's my little bit of input towards the music there. Um, was there anything else you wanted to discuss, Kim?
1: Um, no, actually, you pretty much covered um, most of what I was sort of thinking for the nightmare revisited. Like, I remember when I found it on YouTube, and I was like, "No, they actually got these people to like do covers of these songs. Like, that's awesome." And I was like, "I was a really big. I still am a corn fan, but like." I was listening to them a lot at the time when it came out and I was like no they didn't do all this like did they actually do this like how did they manage to do this and I thought they'd just like gone off and just done it themselves and then I realized oh no it's an actual album that they released and I thought that was amazing Um, considering but just to sort of touch on your quick bit about not realizing that Danny Elfman had actually sung most of Jack Skellington's songs that only ca- I'm surprised like Johnny Elfman didn't voice him as well because I remember um Elfman said in an interview that he resonated with Jack Skellington so much that he basically chewed Tim Burton's ear off saying come on you have to let me be Jack like I work so closely like I feel so like close to him like I'm definitely like him I need to be able to voice him come on let me voice him and Burton basically got so fed up and said right fine you can sing his songs and that's how it came to be that Jack Skellington was voiced in the songs by Danny Elfman. It was literally just because Danny Elfman begged and pleaded because he felt so strong about the character.
0: I just hope that Danny Elfman went up to Tim Burton and said, You're going to hate me for this, Kim. It's so cheesy. <laughs> there are few who deny it. What well, I do, I am the best. <laughs> but my talents are renowned far and wide. <laughs>
1: Oh, could you because imagine it's... if that's what he said? That would be amazing.
0: I'd love it. That that that's not what inspired that <laughs> lyric. At least we don't think it is. But how amazing would that be in some sort of meta sort of thing? Ah, um, oh, it just like it's... sorry, I've der- I've derailed it again, haven't I, Kim? I'm I'm good at doing that. Yeah,
1: but that's that's normal for you, so that's nothing new. That's okay. We're fine. We <laughs> that's all right. Yeah, but no. um. <laughs> I would like to say just like a couple of tidbits and stuff just because everybody loves a bit of fan fiction and some fan theories but I won't go into it too much that a lot of people seem to have this fixation on what Jack and Sally were like in their past lives and I kind of feel like I'm just like I don't really want them to have past lives I'm kind of just like if some of the stories were possibly realistic then fine but I feel like they're just characters just could we just leave it as a a fact that they're characters so so, Jack Skellington, a lot of people have said on Jack Well, Well, wait, 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 wait till the end of the podcast. Too soon to say we agree. But okay, okay. Jack Skellington and the Headless Horseman are apparently one in the same, is one theory, because they both have pumpkin heads. And another theory that a lot of fans seem to be getting on board with is that he is, in fact, the inspiration for the jack-o'-lantern tradition um so basically that jack Skellington is jack-o'-lantern from the irish folklore as he would have been around before christmas was around because we have to remember that jack Skellington's never seen christmas so his he must have lived well before christmas was invented so whether you agree with those or whether people maybe listening to this have their own stories maybe you want to share them with us and we can read them in the comments that might be fun
0: I kind of feel that if Jack was supposed to be the headless horseman, I know he takes off his head. So since I'm dead, I can take off my head to recite Shakespeare in quotation right in the film. Um, I kind of feel his head would be off more than it was. I Some of these fan theories do kind of make me chuckle, but I am going to ask, have you got anything for Sally?
1: Yeah. So there's a couple for Sally. So some think that she is just a character that Doctor Frankenstein created, um, like an obvious nod to Mary Shelley's character, which is obviously Frankenstein, so Frankenstein's monster, and um, because they feel like Doctor Frankenstein created Sally, and but the way they've sort of said it is that the reason she's the way she is is because she still pulls some of her personality, like it's ingrained into her bones, because you see in the movie that after Swally sort of runs off, Dr. Finkelstein makes himself a new companion. And you can see him testing out different skull heads. So they think he basically just raid, like raids graves and pulls out skeletons, put your sort of personalities is ingrained in that, which is why she was sort of deviant and ran away and all this type of thing. So that's one part. But the other part was they actually think that they're on the trees with all the doors, they think one of the trees is missing a door and that the door was actually to Dreamtown. So, like, where the Sandman comes from. Mainly because the Sandman was the king of Dreamtown and then he was overthrown and replaced by governors Albert and Greta, who were actually ragdolls. So a lot of people feel like Sally was the daughter of Albert and Greta, but she was kidnapped by Dr Finkelstein when she was about 12 and he carved over the Dreamtown door so that nobody could get in or out and that she's just grown up that way but they think she comes from dreamtime because she creates potions she was always in the garden with herbs and everything she can make butterflies come out of the potions but also because the sandman dreamtime is all about dreams and visions she also had the vision of pulling the leaves off the plant and it turning into a christmas tree and then the christmas tree going on fire and that's her sort of telling the visionary future and things like that so it's, there's a there's a couple of weird and wonderful stories coming from fans in that one some I can semi get on board with and some I'm just like mm, no
0: um, i the whole kidnapping a 12 year old girl is mm, yeah that's a bit of an off that, thats that's a questionable one but um not not to go too deep into that um I personally like to believe. But there are no backstories, and it's just a one-shot film, and it is what it is. But
1: yeah, they're just characters. Perhaps, yeah. that's,
0: perhaps that's a good link to the final thing I want to talk about before we have our inevitable dispute at the end of this.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And oh, it's coming. It's a coming. Um, now. Him. Does The Nightmare Before Christmas need... A live-action remake.
1: Well, no, it doesn't need one.
0: Okay, well, anyway, I asked that question as it's the title of an article I found online. Now, back in August of this year, um, there was several several big online website news sites, reporting that it was happening. Tim Burton was going to be making a live action remake of The Nightmare Before Christmas Johnny Depp was going to be playing Jack Skellington Helen Bonham Bonham Carter however you say it was going to be playing Sally and people lost their shit they lost their minds, people were so excited for it, I wasn't now the reason I bring this up is this there were so many sites and the one I read the article and was actually called disneydining.com i will link it in the show notes and everything in in the description now they did their article explaining this what it could potentially be however since then they have put a little description up at the start of the article saying since the publication of this post it has been discovered the source of this news piece was written as satire as such news should be taken lightly or as a wishful post on the part of fans who clearly Hope that such a live action remake comes to fruition at Disney. And this is interesting because in this day and age, where we've had remakes of The Lion King, Pinocchio, Beauty and the Beast. Oh God, how many more have they ruined? I shouldn't say that, but there, there's been quite a few. Milan, um, it's it wouldn't sh- Milan, yeah, it 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 wouldn't shock me. It's not far from what i believe could or would happen with disney to actually take something like this and go the fans need a live action remake when the truth is they've run out of ideas and they they don't want to invest in anything they don't want to take a risk and do something new that's the truth of all this at least that's my opinion um however tim burton is massively against anything else being done with the nightmare before christmas He said in so many interviews on film, um, in in articles, in magazines and online, he does not want to cheapen what The Nightmare Before Christmas is. He doesn't want people to come along and make it a cash-grabbing franchise. He sees The Nightmare Before Christmas as what it is, one and done. A beautiful, I would say, perfect story. However, in 2001... He actually, and given I suspect Disney could override him if they wanted to, so let's face it, Disney do what Disney want to do. In 2001, Disney wanted to do a full-blown CGI sequel to The Nightmare Before Christmas. And Burton, nah, he wasn't keen on that. And that, that, that got stopped. And I'm thankful for that. There's been talk of prequels. Even to people wanting... There's a continuation sort of manga comic of The Nightmare Before Christmas. I didn't really heavily research it, so I've not got a lot to go into on it. However, it's out there. It can be found. But I kind of feel for myself that there's nothing you can really offer. If they ever do do a live action remake, which I could see it happen. I really could. Short of telling the 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 origin of the characters, which I personally don't care about. I don't think there's anything much you can add. And the thing is with The Nightmare Before Christmas, as we've already discussed quite heavily, is it's a timeless film because of how it's been made. So why cheapen it by making something with actors, a mixture of CGI, maybe they'll put some stop motion in it, but it won't age like the nightmare before christmas it won't it won't sort of stay preserved so a bit of waffle on my part there but i personally hope they never do a sequel a prequel or a live action remake i don't want to see johnny depp and helen bonham carter in yet another tim burton film i love johnny don't get me wrong and she is great helen bonham Bonham carter i always get i never know what to say there um I don't want it. Any any thoughts to that, Kim? I've sort of stood on my soapbox for a minute then and had a little rant. Anything you want to sort of chuck out there before we wrap um, this up?
1: I don't think we... I don't... I personally don't think it needs done. I think if they were actually going to take that route, then I would expect all the original people to be brought back. Because for me, there is a difference between telling the story in a stop motion picture and then telling the same story but in a real but in a live action so for me it would need to be the same group of people but it would be telling the story as if those were the characters were just real people instead of the characters being stop motion I wouldn't add stop motion into the live action I would just be like here's the stop motion version of the story here is the real people as a character version of the story so for me I couldn't I'm then not comparing a stop motion with comparing a live action. I'm just comparing how they told the story and how they portrayed the story instead of how it was filmed Mm -hmm. because it was filmed, they would be filmed so differently. You're just, it's like, did the stop, did the stop motion sort of give me, did it tell the story better? Or if Johnny Depp and um, Helena Bonham Carter did it, did they tell the story better? That's what I would be looking at. And it could be that you could enjoy both, but you enjoy both in their own, like in their own lanes. Like they're not trying to cross over or jump on each other's lane. They're in their own categories in their own lanes. Personally, I would love to see I mean, get- what Johnny Depp with a Jack. Ske- what Johnny Depp would do with a Jack Skellington character. I don't need to see a movie, but I'd like to see what he did with it. To be quite honest, mm-hmm. I think it'd be interesting because he is very good at character acting so I'd be interested to see where his mind takes him with that.
0: He is. He is very good. Um the reason I mentioned maybe putting stop motion in it is I was just thinking of films like Beetlejuice where they have bits of stop motion in it. Um yeah I appreciate that if someone if someone remakes a film or does a sequel you don't like you do have the option just to ignore it and just enjoy the original property. You don't have to get upset about it but the reason i don't much like when we did the rocky horror podcast last my experience of remakes and retellings are they never get it right or they try and insert too much of today's whatever's going on in it rather than do you know what i mean and i just don't and i also worry sometimes as well just how people would receive certain characters today would you think it was too far beyond the realm of possibility that someone would get really bent out of shape because of how Sally's character's created, and there would be news stories about it? And we need to change how Sally is because she's an imprisoned. Do you see where I'm going with this? I just think,
1: yeah, that's it has just stories. Just... But we say we said this about Rocky Horror, and we could say this about a lot of films. And maybe it's just the generation that we're in. But I just feel like you can pull anything out of a movie if you look hard enough you can find something wrong with every part of a movie if you look hard of it hard enough and to be honest there's going to be people that do that but at the end of the day I think that just ruins it for yourself because you're just analyzing it and looking into it too much like just enjoy the film for what it is and like the thing that I do is I watch historical movies right and there are scenes in historical movies that just older films that just they they wouldn't happen now but I don't say oh I'm not going to watch the movie because there's violence in it or there's violence towards women or this happens or that happens because at the end of the day that's our history and for me it's we should be learning from our history so we've learned that's not something that we do now and this is why we don't do it now but this is what was accepted back then and why it was accepted Mm -hmm. and things like that so
0: 100%
1: for me, it's like, I don't, I could pick the movie to bits if I really, really wanted to, I could, I could pick any movie to bits. But at the end of the day, films are made for yeah. you yeah. to watch and make you be a critical thinker and make, and sort of make you question yourself about stuff and make you laugh and make you sad and change your emotions up and change how you think of things, you know? Like, films are not there to be analysed and nitpicked and pushing agenda like some films do push agendas but some films are there to just open your eyes to stuff or like reimagine a book because some people are great at reading stuff and but sometimes like I personally have not read the Harry Potter books I found I it just wasn't something I read when I was a kid so I probably enjoyed the films more than say people reading the books because they've gone in and they've just said well it's nothing like the book I try and separate books from film because it's very, they're very different. So I think it's one of these things like, please, people, just go watch a movie and just watch it for the sake of, like, for what it is.
0: Now, this is the part. Go on, Kim, ask the question. We always have a question at the end of every podcast (laughs) to see if we agree on something or if we don't. I know where it's going, but.
1: Do we think, do we think Nightmare Before Christmas? Is a Halloween or a Christmas movie?
0: Christmas, one hundred percent. Both. Shall I elaborate as to why I feel that? Do you want to? Both sitting on the fence. Film is about Jack trying to make Christmas, not about trying to make Halloween. Now I appreciate that he's from Halloween Town and and believe me guys listening to this i kind of wish i recorded when kim and my lovely wife carla we were in we were in a telephone conversation a video conversation and and those two just decided to tear on me for about 15 minutes as to why i was wrong it was it was quite amusing um however as much as i say it's a christmas film because I think it's because Jack is trying to make Christmas because he's bored of Halloween. I can, I can see why some people say it is both, and I can see why some people say it is Halloween. And I think because it's Christmas and we're all jolly and happy because the big fat man's coming down the chimney soon, I think I'm going to say that it can be whatever the hell you want it to be as long as you enjoy it. Kim, have you got anything else to add?
1: It's still both. It was released in November, which is between Halloween and Christmas, and that's, that's the end of that. But feel free to give us your opinion in the comments. Please do. I mean, Kim's wrong, so that's fine. Hmm. Um, well, we both think each other's wrong, okay. so we fuck. Occasionally it happens. But I suppose that's... You could, well, we've disagreed now, and that's sort of the end of the podcast. And season one!
0: Wow! Did season we reach one? the end of season, season one without killing each other? Yeah, season one is done. It is done. I feel like, we, like that's we, we, we did it. And we it got sucks. the end. You know, we're not the most reg. We're not the most regular of podcasts because family, jobs, and and life, but. We managed to get five episodes done this year, plus a sort of bonus add on live stream to add to the Turtles one will be not an official podcast, but it was connected to it. And we've already got sort of January's episode lined up and we know what we're doing, but I'm yeah, we got there. Well, I, I hadn't really thought about it to put it up, so yeah. The end of season one, and and you've agreed to come back. Well, you own fifty percent of the podcast, pretty much fifty percent of the channel, but you you've decided you still want to come back. Yeah,
1: and they haven't exactly tried to kill me. There. So I know, no, I haven't lost my patience with you. I haven't hung up on you yet. We haven't lost the plot and been like, no, we're never doing this again. So unfortunately for all the APCers out there, you're stuck with us for another year. Sorry, not sorry.
0: We have we have pretty much got next year already mapped out. A few housekeeping things before we go. If you want to follow Action Pop Dad, the YouTube channel, um, it's on YouTube. Come give us a follow. You can find the Action Popcast here. You can find us now on Spotify, Audible, amazon music which i think is the same as i don't know podcasts or google podcasts i am working on getting us on apple podcasts if you are listening to us on a podcast format as an audio file um it you know if you want to come across and you want to see what we look like see the slides anything we reference in the show please come across you're welcome anytime i'm nick apd i can be found on twitter or x or whatever Oh, who cares what it's called at the moment? As Action Pop Dad. I'm on Instagram as Action Pop Dad. That's where I can be found if you really want to follow me. Kim Gonick. r oh, Kim. Where can the good people find you? If they want to find you. Well, I'm pretty sure it's going to be the exact same answer as every, as every week. And you'll see what I mean.
1: Uh, if you want to follow me, it's Kim Gonick on Instagram. Please don't feel like you need to. I'm not particularly here for followers. Trying to keep up with social media is just a pain in the backside that I'm too old for now. So I don't really want to do it. However, if you like guinea pigs, I do have an Instagram for my guinea pigs called the pig pig files. And they're more interesting than my own Instagram. So you can pick one or the other or you can pick the pig pig files or me, whichever you feel like. That's about as enthusiastic as I'm going to get with that. And we're seeing that. Will we say goodbye now. Well,
0: Kim. Well, I'm just—I was gonna—I was gonna thank you <laughs> and be nice to you for a second, if you want. You can do that occasionally. Thank you for all your hard work this year. Thank you for showing up today. If you'd have phoned me and said, "I can't do it today," I'd have completely understood. <clears throat> I know that you really have struggled through this one. Thank you to you, Kim. Thank you to everyone who's listened this year. We will see you in 2024, or you will hear us, whatever way that works. So, from APC, a very Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, take care of yourselves, get some downtime, and we'll see you in the new year. All the best. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.
1: Thanks for listening to Action Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to follow us on Spotify. Also, why not check out Action Pop Dad on YouTube and give us a follow? And don't forget to hit that notification bell so you don't miss out on other pop culture related projects. Catch you on the next one!